0: As a rule, I am not a huge fan of serial killer movies. I respect Silence Little Lambs and Fincher 7 as extremely well-crafted yet problematic films with stellar <laughs> performances. But both of them kind of leave me cold because they seem to be a bit more obsessed with the pageantry of the genre, Yes. the horror of it. And even though we do follow detectives, The emphasis is on the killer in a way that doesn't intrigue me very much. I really prefer movies about the pursuit of such a killer and what it does to the dogged detectives. So beyond like Gwyneth Paltrow's head in a box, the (laughs) darkness that William Peterson has to embrace that causes PTSD in Manhunter, for example, that's fascinating to me, or what we see in Zodiac. This interests me very much. I actually, though, did not see this film right away because I was so worried it would play like a sequel to Seven. I mean, not literally, but kind of because I remember the horror of going to Seven with my brother and his friends and just leaving it. I don't think I slept for like three (laughs) nights. It was just too much. It was so funny, though, what my first experience with the movie was like because I started the film. And then I realized when they started showing the years and the places that it was set, that my mom actually lived in that area around that time. And drove around. Yeah, drove around at night, listening to music and hanging out. And and so I'm watching this and I'm like, how am I gonna sell her on watching a serial killer movie? And so I watched a little more to make sure she could like handle it. And then um, she came home and I like hyped it up Like, we're gonna watch this, and if it gets too much, like, whatever. And she was getting more and more freaked out when she was, you know, years were going by, and she's like, yeah, I was there for part of that time, like the early 70s. And so that really creeped her out. But yeah, there's all kinds of weird touchstones in the movie, like my uncle Gary, who I've told you about is a, or was, uh, he's passed on now, a vice uh, police officer in uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul area, and his thing used to be getting animal crackers. I don't know if it was from Bullet or where it came from, but he loved getting, he worked the night shift and would get animal crackers. So I'm watching Dave Tosky, Mark Ruffalo do this and thinking about Gary. And the funniest story with him and animal crackers was he actually went to a gas station in the middle of a shift, walked in, and while he was getting his animal crackers, it was robbed and so he had to like step in and he's like man i just want my animal crackers but yeah so i don't know so this movie had some interesting links that way for me as well
1: welcome to zodiac chronicle a 24-part investigation into david finch's 2007 genre-altering masterpiece zodiac Adapted from Robert Graysmith's novel by the screenwriter James Vanderbilt, the film, of course, stars an incredible ensemble cast led by Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr., and Mark Ruffalo. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Our introduction today was film critic and host of the terrific and insightful Watch with Jen podcast, my friend, Jen Johans. Before we dive into the theme of the week and the show proper, I'd love to remind you to jump on and rate and review the show wherever you're listening. It's a huge help to find even more of those lovers of our brand of obsessive cinematic deep dives. I also wanna let you know that links to our Patreon with our weekly Rum and Rant podcast and special Uncut Zodiac Sessions interviews, the latest one with Liz Hanna, as well as links to our merchandise with artwork by the incredible Brianna Ashby and Amy Reed, are in the show description or at oneheatminute.com. Joining me today to tirelessly work through fake confessions and misdirections to find a guy whose favorite book is the most dangerous game ah writer and contributor for film school rejects and paste brianna ziegler
2: that's another scene where if you watch the movie multiple times it's where you hope it's gonna end differently but like it it always starts off and i'm like they got this they got this they're being reasonable like it gives them the keys it's gonna be good and then i have that thought of like it doesn't matter because The point is to kill them it's not to get their money it doesn't matter that they're both humans it's just about the bloodlust and uh and it's almost like a like a, a, a fuck you to the audience for like finding that first scene so fun yes you know it's like it comes back around with another couple and this time it's like yeah no this is um this is fucked up like really fucked up yes Not fun, fucked up. Not fun, fucked
1: up. Former film critic at the LA Weekly and Village Voice, former host of the Switchblade Sisters podcast, now filmmaker and screenwriter of Blumhouse's Black Christmas, April Wolf.
3: If you look at Seven or The Game or anything else, you know, like they all have their own very different, interesting thing. And, you know, He's able to make for instance in the game he's able to make San Francisco seem desolate. Yes. And all of a sudden in this film it's a busy populated city and he like he has the control with that sound and I think recognizes that he has that and and I just I mean again it's it's that novelistic approach of thinking about filmmaking in in this way where you need to have control of every detail.
1: I'm returning. Award-winning screenwriter and auteurist podcasting mastermind, Lee Zachariah. Editor at large at rogerebert.com. TV critic at Vulture, Matt Zolazides. Film critic on sabbatical with bylines at rogerebert.com and the Metaplex, Brendan Hodges. Online movie writing veteran, Moriarty at Ain't It Cool. The founder of HitFix, film critic, screenwriter, industry analyst, the legendary, Drew McQueenie. Writer, film and book critic, Bill Ryan. Film critic and editor at large of Empire magazine, co host of the ginormous Empire podcast, and author of the newly released and terrific Women vs. Hollywood The Fall and Rise of Women in Film, Helen O'Hara. Editor in chief of Fangoria, executive producer, horror noir, and shutters upcoming queer horror documentary, Phil Noble Jr., and finally, award-winning actor on stage and screen, a man who delivers the most consistently involving and affecting characters to a myriad of films and TV, including Fargo, The Trial of the Chicago 7, Gothica, The Drew Carey Show, Shutter Island, The Invitation, The Founder, and this film Zodiac. Just a little aperitif before perhaps the scene of the film, the incredible John Carroll Lynch. This is the 13th episode of Zodiac Chronicle, Cancer Part 1. In this episode, after a news call-out for more information, the second flood of Zodiac-obsessed crazies and paranoid people enveloped the San Francisco PD. After Avery essentially embarrasses them live on air by connecting the dots to another potential Z-killing, Armstrong and Toski are forced to wade through every single fake confession, slanderous and false accusation from the wild and wonderfully weird inhabitants of 70 San Francisco, Going through the motions, following up every lead, eventually leads to an interview that jolts Armstrong awake, the most dangerous game, a light at the end of the gun. This could be our guy. Every episode we used a film title to encapsulate our theme. That insatiable suspicion that a case like this inspires. The viral distrust that makes you think twice about everyone around you. So as we're stuck in the zodiac quagmire, giving side eye to anyone of our neighbours, family or friends that we could imagine has the urge to kill or terrorise, I thought the theme for today's episode should be another film dripping with paranoia and set in San Francisco. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Let's get to the scene. we left off after an altogether frustrating encounter at the Riverside PD. Handwriting samples, communication with police and media. The most legitimate suspect for Donald Logue's Nalo, Ruffalo's Dave Tosky, and Zach Grenier's Mel Nikolai. Yet, John Mahn's stubborn and old school Riverside captain likes another guy, and thinks that cooperating is sharing information with the Chronicle. Bridging the added insult of Nalo saying,
4: well, There's your press agent. Talk
1: to him about it. To the injury of having their pants pulled down on television and the latest wave of sicko fans, Fincher selects a loop from a track from a landmark soul album, 1969's Hot Buttered Soul by Isaac Hayes. The song, Hyperbolic, syllabic, the mesmerizing rhythm of the bass riff, and the punctuative guitar flange give rhythm and soul to the soul-sucking encounters with bad actors looking for a fast track to infamy or those so incredibly fearful that the world is filled with zodiacs here's phil nobile jr on a fact that i think is very pertinent to this case and this town and the state of western civilization for about the last 40 years people are unwell
5: yeah, I mean, a quick a quick guess to that would be that we are uh, severely underserving the mentally ill in my country. And, uh, <laughs> you know, th- this is someone that should be either medicated or in therapy or, or uh, supervised and, you know, our, our streets are lousy with homeless folks who are, you know, aren't, aren't just, you know, down on their luck. They, these are mentally ill people that aren't getting treatment and I think there's very much grades of that. And you know any sales job i've ever had or any you know wherever i had to call strangers you you wouldn't get to the end of the day before you get a just a, a random person on the other end of the line who's just not well and uh you know i think that it's it's all different shades of, of that and, and in a city and in a city like san francisco where there's a lot of uh uh fringe fringe dwellers sounds derogatory and i don't mean it that way but um people that aren't you know Middle of the road, meat and potatoes, uh, you know, Americans. They're, where they're, like I said, the, it, there's a lot. There's a lot of young people. There's a lot of there's a lot of substances in San Francisco back then. I think <clears throat> the city, like the Tenderloin district and all that, it just attracted probably a higher than average uh, quotient of of mental ill folks. And so that's why you have a police department full of people saying they're the Zodiac or the Zodiac's their neighbor the other thing that i think is so amazing about the movie and so which so like is such a smoking gun about it being a post 9/11 thing is that it, he even stops the letters fairly early yeah but like the bul- the bulk of this movie is just people spinning out from this fairly concentrated campaign right yes and i think that you know what you just said about um, xenophobia and mistrusting you know middle eastern folks and and brown folks in your community i think we're still feeling that from 9 11. yeah Uh, it it just keeps going and we'll be years undoing all of it
2: you should have called me, paul
1: So the scene starts with a clipping, ever so delicately being extracted from the paper. We see the face of Jake Gyllenhaal's Robert Graysmith in a particularly down moment, gone as his kind of puppy dog buoyancy bouncing around the newsroom. For the first time that we've seen in the film so far, the deadening sensation of new questions without answers is finally registering on his face. Here's Lee Zachariah on a theory that he has about the merging Of this serial killer energy and of Gray Smith
4: it's not about the Zodiac killer this film isn't about the Zodiac killer this film is about what it's like to be a psychopath yeah and we spend the whole film following one (laughs) and there are so many clues and he misses all of them all people do day after day is tell him that he's an outsider He's a psychopath. It's just his energies got channeled into something different. They got channeled into raising a family, and, and just to be clear, I'm talking about the movie Robert Smith. <laughs> I don't know the don't know the man. I I did read that you know he read the script and went, oh, that's why my wife divorced me. I get it now. <laughs> um, so there's got to be an element of truth to it, but you know, this is a man who gets told you know almost the first time we see him, everyone. So you know, was it Paul Avery says? Everybody, let's go to Morty's, and we see him looking outside, standing outside, looking in the door. He's an outsider. That is such a quick scene. That's a lot of setup for two very quick shots. And the purpose of those shots is to establish him as an outsider. How does he know that the Zodiac wouldn't give his name? He's asked and he doesn't answer because I think deep down he knows the answer is something he doesn't want to admit. He's you know, you think about the the, the thing that people call him behind his back there's just clue after clue, when he's in the prison there is just we just keep getting told over and over again that there is something wrong with Robert Graysmith that he is an outsider that he doesn't quite fit into society and this search that he is undergoing is a search for himself, ultimately that's who he wants to look in the eye that's who he wants to understand, and it's all there. But for the grace of God, go I. You know, a slight twist of fate, and it's Robert Graysmith killing people. That that's the message of the film. That is that is what it's telling us. Is <laughs> there is a, you think there's a thin line between crime and order? There is a thin line between us, between between the paths that we can take. You know. Crime and Order are just arbitrary, you know, categories for the places that we end up, the things we end up doing based on the circumstance in our life. And that's what that's what this film was to me on the last few minutes, realizing that from word go, you know who the Zodiac is. You know you know <laughs> the guy that you're looking for, you see him from the beginning. And it's not the guy out there killing people. He's incidental, he's just pushing the characters to do what they do that's not who we're looking for yeah uh, look look at the scene when he first reads out the message and the way he does it he reads it robotically like a serial killer would it's so (laughs) like it's almost too much yeah it's almost he's almost over exit beyond you know recognition um but he sounds like a serial killer even though he's reading the words of a serial (laughs) killer he does it in a way that kind of makes it feel like he is did you see this? Unfortunately, yes. Here comes every lunatic in California. I'm the Zodiac. And how
6: did you kill your victims? With a gun?
7: No. With a hammer.
6: All I'm authorized to tell you is that he's still under government employment. And
7: who authorized you to tell me this? That's
6: all I'm authorized to say. Only a little rat bastard like Andre could have done something like cut off all the victims' hands. The
7: Zodiac didn't cut off any of the victims' hands. Are you sure?
6: Yes, sir. Travis and I work here side-by-side side for 10 years. His foot gets crushed in an accident and the killings begin. Coincidence? I don't know. You're a cop, man. Do the math.
8: Have you considered the killer might be Paul Avery? Frequently. He was drinking Coors, getting a load Here's Drew
1: McQueenie on the avalanche of facts in Zodiac and another connection to another conspiratorial thriller.
9: I, I think one of the... One of the other films that kind of comes to mind that tries to do this, and I love this movie, but I ultimately think the director got lost in the notion of I need to have a character find a conclusion or come to a conclusion and have an answer because the audience is going to need that from me. Yes, I think Oliver Stone's JFK is a terrific piece about obsession and about Getting lost in the avalanche of facts and getting lost in the Absolutely. idea that you're you're trying to pull apart something that's essentially unknowable. You're never going to get that answer. But Garrison slowly goes insane. I think Oliver needed that courtroom scene where he gets to be Clarence Darrow or he gets to be you know uh, Atticus Finch and he gets to kind of put the summation on it, make us feel better, and let us know, hey. There may be no answer to this, but I'm going to get answers, and answers are coming, and you're doing. He wants you to feel at the end of it good and satisfying. And I feel like it's the one place where Oliver cheats his own movie terribly because that film should have the same kind of lingering, horrible, dissatisfying itch at the end of it where yes. Garrison didn't get. No a conclusion to this. And Garrison was ruined by this. Garrison, his public image was ruined by this. Absolutely. So that to me is, is where somebody chickened out. They got right up to the finish line
1: and then was like, but I'm going to have Kevin Costner play and I'm not gonna make him crazy. (laughs) Yeah, we can't make Kevin go completely batshit by the end of this movie. And Fincher's like,
9: oh no, fuck that. (laughs) One guy's an alcoholic, another guy retires from the police force (laughs) because he's broken and accused of doing something terrible. And the cartoonist just can't be a human being anymore.
1: So. (laughs) It took us giving him the script to figure out why he got divorced for this. God, Amazing. amazing. Now here's April Wolf on revisiting this film even more since transitioning from a film critic into a filmmaker, and admiring the effortlessness of the transitions. And then we're gonna make our own effortless transition to a little bit from Mr. John Carroll Lynch, star of this film, about his observations watching master filmmakers stylistic control.
3: I came to Zodiac pretty late um because i i wasn't necessarily on the fincher train you know I, yes. I had loved seven and um it wasn't like something that i was seeking out the rest of his work um you know it would come to me and i'd be like oh that's great but i would never kind of pull it together as a thread of like this is fincher now of course like later on in my life i can i can sit back and look at this filmmaker and say that this is singularly a fincher movie when i see one um but i was just kind of a casual enjoyer of them um and this movie coming to it so late i mean i really only watched it for the first time about a year ago and i think that's a great time for me to watch it just because uh, kind of having transitioned fully into the filmmaking side of things after working criticism i get to appreciate a little bit more about some of the things that he pulls off and some of these really small details that kind of make a fincher movie a fincher movie and that i'm sitting there like taking notes on you know so i've seen it <laughs> three times now just in the past year because you know I'll, I'll find it whenever it's it's streaming and and i'll just be sitting there and his transitions, while they are not groundbreaking, are so smooth and satisfying and visually detailed in both foreground and background. And that's something that that so many people aren't looking at. They're not trying to be clever. And that's something that I I really appreciate about his work in particular.
10: This is a grotesque example, so forgive me, but I've been to the Picasso Museum in Barcelona, and. He's a student, a child. Yeah. And its rooms are filled with form drawings. Excellent, excellent form drawings. Yes. You know, supple, muscular hands and arms and bodies. He was a master if he wanted to, everything could have been a beautiful form drawing. He didn't give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> he
1: didn't care. <laughs> yeah. He was going for something else. He was
10: going for something else. And other. that's what he was doing. Yeah. And when you work with master directors, all of them are going for something. Yes. And I've never worked with Soderbergh, but other master directors I've worked with are interested in individual things. Whether it's a kinetic energy, whether it's a kind of control that we're talking about with with uh, David, and and um, and um, you know there are and it all boils down to what their interests are. Yes. And it's amazing to me when I watch a movie from a director with an established set of interests and they suddenly do a movie that has none of them yeah like David Lynch and straight story yeah. or uh, Todd Haynes and dark waters yeah those two movies should have been made by somebody else <laughs> and they just dropped absolutely all of what they do and did something else and to be able to do that to have that kind of control of storytelling to to take not only to look to learn to be like it would be like eric clapton coming on stage and going hey everybody uh i'm gonna play the next 90 minutes like carlos santana (laughs) and and then he does it and you go well shit," you know like (laughs) uh, it's hard enough to play like eric clapton and now you're gonna play like carlos santana like that's that's what, you know, those two directors that I'm pointing out did in those movies. They just
8: What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat, picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket, outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? <laughs>
10: they just did a different movie because they can yeah. and um and um i i i, I find that
1: um, astounding there's not a more alan pakula movie that's ever been made that wasn't alan pakula than dark waters it's 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 yeah. like it, yeah, like, watching, like, yeah. like just watching that and i'm like this is i mean alan pakula yeah it was an angel on todd haynes's shoulder it's, just, yeah. it's 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 yeah. that's the kind of movie that this is yep yeah.
10: and it's you know there's no melodrama there's no bright colors there's no right there's no sense of kind of co- costume style there's no, n- there's there's no moving cameras there's there's no yeah, yeah. there's no you
1: know it's but nonetheless n- it is a pretty much staggering oh, masterpiece it's a of a
10: fantastic movie. <laughs> film God, fantastic
1: it's, film such a good film
10: heartbreaking just
1: heartbreaking yeah,
10: yeah. 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 so that's uh, you know david's uh, david's mastery of of all of it from soup to nuts is what he's learned and what, what he can bring to bear. If he wanted to do a different kind of movie, he could. His
6: foot gets crushed in an accident and the killings begin. A coincidence? I don't know. You're a cop, man. Do the math.
8: Have you considered the killer might be Paul Avery?
6: Frequently. He was drinking Coors, getting a load on. He starts talking about hunting people, like that book. It says how you can put a light the end of a gun to
1: use as a sight in the dark. 26th of July, 1971, more than two years after the murder of Darlene Farron and the maiming of Mike Majot, Armstrong dutifully takes notes with another potential lead. Paul Schultz plays Sandy Panzarella, who stares intently at John Hemphill's Donald Chaney. Even before Armstrong is physically compelled to straighten up his posture, Schultz's focus as Sandy is telegraphing the importance of this upcoming message. It's been eight months following leads as the Chevron lets us know, digging straight down to get out of a well, as it were. Like
6: that book. It says how you can put a light at the end of a gun to use as a sight in the dark.
7: He said that.
6: Yeah. So I asked him, how would you get away with it? And he said it'd be easy, because there'd be no real motive to the thing. Then he said he'd write letters to the police and call himself Zodiac to mess with them. They like messing with people.
7: You're positive, he said, Zodiac?
6: Yeah. I thought it was his stupid name, so. So I told him. He got up all upset and said, I don't care what you think. I thought about it a long time and that's the name I'm gonna use.
7: Did you feel like he'd been thinking about it a long time?
6: He was raw about losing his job at the school. Talked about shooting out the tires of a school bus and picking off the little darlings.
7: He actually used those words. That's what made me remember.
6: Afterwards, I told my wife I didn't want to see him again and I haven't since. Other thing is, Lee's into skin diving. I know he's been up to that lake a bunch of times. Lake Berryessa, did you ever go with him? A couple times, we went fishing by Pouda Creek, near there. Tell him when you put it together. Uh, about a year ago, uh, in the paper, there was a story about the Zodiac, and it all comes back. I tried to call the local cops. He blew him off, thought he was a nut.
7: And you're sure the conversation you had about Zodiac took
6: place on January 1st, 1968? It couldn't have been any later. I started a new job in LA on January 20th. I had to move.
1: Armstrong's methods are effortless here. He's looking for motive. He's latching onto specific details. He's building more of a profile on the suspect than they've ever had before and building the case that he needs to make to get the legal authorization to pursue Arthur Lee Allen. Here's Bill Ryan on Anthony Edwards's naturalism.
11: Edwards is able to do so much with his eyes in this movie. I, you've seen Bay of Angels. Jacques no. Demy's Bay of Angels. No. It's a very good movie. Very, well, it's a great movie. And there's an actor in a Claude man who I, for some reason, popped into my head when I was watching Edwards this time. Because it's the same kind of, in my memory, of complete, like, you know, naturalism in acting in film. Uh, I would say specifically American film, because I think it probably, that would mean a different thing in different countries naturalism playing differently but what we might in america what we might define as a naturalistic performance is still kind of removed from how people most people are in real life yes it's heightened somewhat but compared to other kinds of performances it seems you know uh this is how people are yes but anthony edwards and claude Mann and bay of angels Are the two of the performances that I've seen in my life are like, I think that's how people really are, actually. In my experience, (laughs) that's how people actually look, and that's how they their facial expressions work when they're communicating something with their face or their eyes, the tone of voice. Because it would be considered flat, I think incorrectly. If it's done well, it shouldn't be considered flat by a lot of people, or or not. Like, I think a lot of people might say, yeah, he's good in it. Anthony Edwards is good. But, you know, who is really great is, and then, list like, Downing, who is great. But that's more of a a movie performance. They're they're doing
1: completely different. You talk about, you know, I think one of the, things I love about this movie for Fincher just as a director is his style, like the dexterity of his style in this movie, taking it to those sort of more horrific and, and, you know, serial killer typified moments of like being in the basement to then really straight faced authentic depictions of things. But I think, you know, they talk about Bill Armstrong and they're like, he's the most decent man, that this mm-hmm. is what they describe him. The most decent man who ever lived. That's what Tosky said. He's just the most decent man. Yeah. And to Finch's credit, he's like, oh, well that's Anthony Edwards. It's like one of the most decent guys I've ever met. And <laughs> it's and a I, great. And him just being, he's he the, just un- the guy. He's, he's so under, and like, probably not for anyone who listens to this podcast, but he's so deeply underappreciated in this movie for yes. what he's doing. Because yes. he makes Ruffalo work. He makes Toski yeah. work. He, the, everything about yeah. their interplay and the balance of the their entire weight of the movie is on how they're relating with one another.
11: So when Anthony Edwards shows up, listening to commentary, Elroy, who spent a lot of time with homicide detectives, says, "That's my guy."
4: <laughs> yes,
12: he's he like
11: that's that is. That's him. That's that is a a a a, a Los, well San Francisco, but that that's a a, a homicide cali- detective. A
1: Californian homicide. A Californian
11: detective. homicide detective. That's yeah. and I and I not that I have spent a lot of time or any time with any homicide detective, <sighs> but I I feel watching it. And it's like this guy is a, this guy's a homicide detective. It's like the old uh, anecdote about Harrison Ford when he was first starting out and he had some. Uh, extra part. And uh he I don't know if this I I don't know if he would have auditioned for a part like this or if this was why he didn't get a later part. But anyway, it was basically the part was a grocery store clerk. And some casting director or somebody said to him after seeing either the audition or the part in the movie said, "When I saw that, when I saw you do that, I didn't think there's a movie star." And Harrison Ford said I thought you were supposed to say, that's a grocery store clerk. Watching Anthony Edwards, I feel that that's a homicide detective. That's, that's, uh, I just think he's, he's so just,
6: he's the, he's the man he's playing in, in, in that movie. January 1st, 1968, it couldn't have been any later. I started a new job in LA on January 20th. I had to move.
7: This is my problem. This this guy... Arthur Lee Allen? This guy, Lee, just lays out his entire evil plan to a fishing buddy on New Year's Day. Oh he's angry, he's uh, been drinking, been thinking about it for a while. I can buy that. So why didn't Cheney contact us sooner? He checked, he did. First recorded contact with the police department about Allen was uh, in Cabona, January 10th, 1970. He just got lost in the shuffle. Did Cheney have anything against Allen? Did Allen screw his wife or anything? We're gonna do a full background check, but I gotta tell you, I like this guy. So let's pull some handwriting samples. Hi.
1: Here's a conversation with Helen O'Hara about the uniqueness of the American serial killer and a little bit of a chat with Matt Solisites around the disappearance or the evaporation of serial killers in the modern age.
13: No, I think I think it's more just the fascination with the The nature of this kind of crime. I was thinking as well about um, Sandman, the Neil Gaiman comic book series. So there's a a scene in that, a storyline in that, where somebody ends up at what's called a serial convention spelled with a C, but wouldn't you know it, it's a cover for a serial with an S convention, and a sort of, you know, uh, meeting of serial killers, and it is kind of just a fascinating, it's only a little tiny thing in the books, but it's just a kind of fascinating look into these mentalities and these sort of self-delusions and these weird otherworldly almost priorities and i don't know neil gaiman's also said that europe is spooky because it's old and america is spooky because it's big and i think there's there's elements of that in this film as well like it's just it's such a big job to find one person amid all of this sprawl you know If these are completely motiveless crimes, if there's no sort of, you know, Jane-Gum link to the first victim, then where do you start, you know? And there's no particular forensic evidence. There's obviously no DNA at the time. There's so little to go on and they can and the jurisdictions can't easily share information on this stuff i mean that's what's interesting i guess about manhunter is that they start this process of kind of trying to tie these things together and try to share information and and figure this stuff out and i think that's why the zodiac killer maybe um Struck the public imagination so much was that he was the one to put the pieces together and he was the one to say these are all connected because there's no reason to think no. that the police would have done without that. Maybe the first two, in that it's cut, or maybe even the first three couples, you know, at isolated locations, maybe, but they were all juris- different jurisdictions, so it doesn't even follow there. And, and different weapons. And different weapons. And, and like, he wasn't very good at killing people. Like, I don't <laughs> mean to you know victim blame here or whatever but like you know he's he left people alive at the scene and i mean when you're watching it in the film as well when you're watching it, you're like well those people are super super dead immediately but like they weren't they lived long enough to talk do you know what and this is getting a little bit away from zodiac but i remember when when on new year's day 2020 I thought to myself you know what we've actually done really well here because for the last I think 500 years I think 500 anyway maybe 600 there has been a major european war in the teens of of every century right so not just yes. the first world war but you know yeah. a century before that was the napoleonic century before that the <laughs> war of the spanish succession century before that i forget but 30 year war maybe anyway but every single beginning of a century in the teens major European war and I'm like dudes we did it we got through no war and then 2020 happened so you know it does you're right it does feel like we're like things are unsettled again and so the time for films like Zodiac may once again have come and what's interesting like again like comparing it to 100 years ago there are virtually no films from the time about the Spanish flu there's there's almost I think there's a couple of mentions in silent movies that we have but like almost nothing like nobody and nobody really wrote about it particularly nobody really wrote music about it nobody really you know not to any great degree at least I'm sure there are scattered bits and pieces um and I feel like there's an there's an element of that like when that songbird film was announced that deals with last year everybody's like oh fuck off literally get get it away from me hide it I don't want to know I don't want to know about it I don't know I have no interest in it whatsoever (laughs) we've been here let's move on um, you get that. And, you get that press screening in by the
1: UK. <laughs> you just oh write, fuck off <laughs> and they go, Helen. <laughs> You're like, no one wants this. Okay, I mean, go back to the yeah, distributors. Bring it out just, in a year.
13: Just yeah, no. I mean, obviously, I I will watch it because I have to you at have some to. point. But like, yeah, I'm not, course. you know, I'm not relishing the, the prospect. I just so yeah. So I, I feel like there's some things that we deal with by not by saying okay, that's over. Let's move on. Yes. And I think there are things that we deal with by actually, you know, facing them. <laughs> um, and it's weird, isn't it? Because, you know, this, this case did inspire a big film of the time.
8: A huge Very film.
13: closely. Huge film. And, um, and Dirty Harry, you know, saved the day and saved the school bus and all was well. But there is a, a danger that we're a sort of Dirty Harry society, right? That yes. There is a danger yeah. that we are um, processing things the wrong way. Like, in, in this country, there's a lot of chat about people not wearing their masks properly or, you know, standing too close to you in the supermarket, and not enough about the government complete failing on at every possible stage. Blame what we see. We blame yeah. the person in the grocery line who's standing a bit too close and whose mask is under their nose or whatever. Instead of thinking about, no, systemically what's wrong and systemically what's happening, and overall what is the big picture here and how can we figure this out? And not just figure this out, but you know in this in the case of this film like how can we get evidence how can we action this how can we actually make a case against this person even if we find the right person how do we prove it um which you know spoiler they don't so
12: and you know that's another thing though going back to something you were saying earlier this you know this emergence of the serial killer mm. um i don't remember who said it and it's probably more than one person but there is a theory that the serial killer emerged because essentially in the United States, because the United States had gotten too big to be governable. Yes. And, and, and by the time we got to the mid nineties, when DNA evidence came in, video surveillance became more common. And then finally we get to the turn of the century when everybody starts carrying around a cell phone that doubles as a tracking device. Yes. Yes now things become more governable and yeah we can have that debate of like you know that famous that famous line uh those who value security over privacy will have neither yes you know people are often willing they're often willing to trade privacy for security but i'm certainly i certainly personally don't have any regrets about the fact that we traded a little bit of that anonymity that we used to have in the 70s and 80s and even the 90s uh, for less likelihood of people getting away with
1: crimes, yeah. you know, except, I mean, street crimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, no, higher up the no, ladder. no, the white-collar crime is a booming, That It's booming. Like, There's it's... nothing you can do with them, apparently. <laughs> uh, no, yeah. no, you can't yeah. stop
7: that. We
12: just decided not to prosecute those, but... Yeah. Oh, I'm samples?
7: Hi. Talk to when He got the samples. What are you, what are you having? field so, the check stubs are a wash. There's not enough handwriting. The application's got more, but it doesn't look like Z, so he can't rule him in, but he can't rule him out either. Well, that's vague. He needs more samples. Also, our guy is a pervert. The Bell got the application from Bailey Springs. I told him that Alan had been fired for touching kids. Touching? Polite euphemism. So what do you want to do? Make some phone calls. How are you done with the price? Go
8: ahead.
1: Here's Brianna Ziegler on something that I feel every single time I watch this movie at this precise point. She sums it up just so well, man, I hope it goes down differently.
2: It's so measured and it just, I don't know. It's not, there was another thing about it where it's like, I feel like every time I watch it, I want there to be a different outcome. Like I was watching it last night and I'm like, all right, robert graysmith he's gonna figure it out this time he's <laughs> definitely gonna get it like i you know it's like it's like i have other movies like that too where i've seen them so many times but i still every time i think like all right this is gonna go a little bit differently like and i don't know how to because it's not like every movie that i'm not like that with every movie but but this one in particular. I don't know what it is about it where I'm just like maybe things will go differently this time and I love revisiting it to to, to give give it that opportunity to like to try and fix things because I want I want them so bad and 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 it's such a like and it's also weird to want to revisit again when you know nothing's going to get solved yes but at the same time every time I watch it and I realize this also at the end it feels so it feels so definite yes. that it had to have been Arthur Lee Allen, and I like and and when that text pops up on the screen and when he's wrapping everything up and like I I, I feel like I sit through déjà vu and I'm like oh my god it's definitely Arthur Lee Allen <laughs> how did I forget that but that is it's 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 this movie where it's like every time I watch it it's like I'm I'm re. I've, I've restarted the mystery, and I don't know what's going to happen. Go ahead. Did you
8: and Mr. Cheney have a chance to look at the copies
6: of the Zodiac letters we sent you? Yeah, some of this stuff is pretty creepy. Yeah, we not. Uh, I mean, creepy like Lee. I mean, he he misspells words like that. He thinks it's funny. What about the handwriting? I don't know. Don't you have experts for that stuff? Our man at Question
7: documents says it's inconclusive.
6: Maybe he did it with his other hand. The letters are. not for Lee, right? What do you mean? He's ambidextrous. He can write with either hand. Didn't you guys know that?
7: In everyday life, Alan uses his left hand. Job applications, letters to friends, etc. But he writes the Zodiac letters with his right hand, producing a different handwriting that he can't be linked to. We've we got to see this guy, Chief. Where is he? Vallejo. He works at Union Oil in Pinole. His brother's up there, too.
10: See them both? Make sure you call Mullonax, it is his backyard.
7: Alright, oh, because that works so well for us in Riverside. Cooperation, that's us, at all costs.
1: In the spirit of cooperation, here's the final word for this episode with Mr. Brendan Hodges.
14: Well, exactly, and I guess the next point would then be to what extent is that, you know, a kind of self deceit? To what extent is that yeah. putting all the facts together to make sense because you have to let them make sense and <laughs> I'm not saying that against Smith's credibility or that I think he's wrong what I am saying is that you know it also in the case of JFK and Libra Delillo did the same thing, he looked at every document he possibly could have and he made what he thought was a very compelling explanation of what went down to the best of his ability. He made it in good faith. He wasn't dramatizing this to be, you know, postmodern and to make all of these high-minded points. No, he genuinely thought his depiction of the JFK assassination was true, truthful. Was it? Probably not. A bunch of people (laughs) are like, I don't think it was. And what I'm really driving at is what Zodiac as a movie does and perhaps Graysmith himself did to some extent, was that even if the facts do go together in a way where you could be satisfied, our instinct to make sense of facts that are only half facts and some are unreliable and some are not and so forth is so powerful that it can crystallize belief under the pressure of our need for resolution. And I think that feeling uh, of that desperation is part of what really gets under your skin when you watch this movie. Feeling that immense weight of, you know, it's like being, you know, in molten lava watching diamonds form. And those diamonds <laughs> are truth, and you're trying to find it. But then there's also equally things that are forming in all of that molten hell that look like real diamonds and they're not right there that that's the whole thing and it's hard when you're in that situation to tell the difference and again i'm not saying it's not saying it's not i think it probably is but that's almost besides the point yes because our need for belief and our need for resolution is so powerful we have to believe it's him even if it wouldn't be
1: That concludes episode 13 of Zodiac Chronicle, Cancer, Part 1. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you're the first to know about all upcoming episodes. If you can't get enough, Unplugged Zodiac sessions will be available exclusively on the one Heat minute Patreon, linked in our show notes. This fortnight is Liz Hanna. Next fortnight is Helen O'Hara. This episode of Zodiac Chronicle was researched, written, and presented by me, Blake Howard. The music of Zodiac Chronicle is composed, produced, and performed by Chris the Duff Duffy from Los Espinas, Our companion, I Am Not Avery Zodiac Chronicle stickers were done by the talented Amy Reed, who you can find on Instagram at at ai.me.me or via email at amyreed 310 at gmail.com. And if you really want to see their beauty, the best way to see it is up close. Go and buy yourself a pin. Thank you so much for listening. Next episode is a big one. Until next time. Good. Bye.